Raise your hand if you are a user on Facebook. You have a profile. Okay. You are cool, right? Just like that. Do you know how many users there are on Facebook right now? How many? Close. Yeah. Two billion. Two billion users. Now, you know, Doreen has like four of them, so maybe uh, there's a little bit of duplication going on, but how many people are in the world? Anybody know? Right, so that's a lot of people on Facebook. Two billion of the six, seven, whatever the figures are. Seven now? 7.4. Crazy, right? Ten years ago I was saying Facebook is dumb. No one's going to do that. Now look, right? My little, uh, just not feeling like doing something new, even at the age of 28. Listen to this. In a speech in Chicago, Zuckerberg, the CEO, said that sadly, of the 2 billion users, only 100 million of them are in what he called a meaningful community uh, on Facebook. So like in a Facebook group. Okay, so 2 billion, but sadly to Mr. Zuckerberg, only 1 million of them were in what he called meaningful community. And he went on to refer to this as like they used to find in church. Which is an interesting correlation. Honestly, the first reference to these kind of quotes, I thought some of the conservative slash Christians were a little hard on Zuckerberg. I think they took him out of context a little bit. But he did make that parallel. What he's saying is he wants the 100 million figure in this speech, he was casting vision, he wants that 100 million figure to rise to 1 billion uh, in like the next 3 to 5 years. So he wants to explode in reference to the people that of these uh, users that are in these meaningful communities, which he's calling Facebook groups, right? So he's casting that vision. And here's what he says about it. He says, if we can do this, it will not only turn around the whole decline in community membership we've seen for decades. It will start to strengthen our social fabric and bring the world closer together. So in this speech, he seems to suggest that online virtual community through Facebook groups can provide unity in a way that churches have in the past and seem to be failing to do in the present. That's a pretty big claim. I want to throw that out to you. Do you agree? Do you disagree? (laughs) probably your answer to that question, agree or disagree, is going to depend on the, the value assessment that you have, like what Christian community is, what online community is, and do they have any sort of correlation? That is, can you take one instead of the other? Uh, Is it just meaningful community? It doesn't really matter where you have it, where it comes from, the value of meaning, meaningful community, whether it's in a church or in some other social grouping or in Facebook groups, 
are, is there a one-to-one -one correlation in terms of their function and their worth and their value? I think it's interesting social, uh, just kind of uh, awareness, understanding, uh, just social thinking, that people would begin to start thinking this way, right? In this age of individualism, where everybody thinks the world revolves around them, right? In this age of self-sufficiency and online virtual community, the question for us is this. Where does unity in God's covenant family, or should we say, where does unity in the church find its place in our values and in our commitments? I'll ask it again. It's up there. Where does unity in God's covenant family, unity in God's church, find its place in our values and commitments? Today, in Psalm 133, grab your Bibles, we're going to dig right in. Psalm 133, today, it speaks directly to us regarding the value of unity. The, the blessing that unity is, and the source from where it comes. So, today, it's my hope that we will be able to see unity for what it is. Clearly, because I think uh, the world in which we live and our own uh, just struggles and distractions, we can be uh, it can be ambiguous. It can be foggy. Our vision of true community. We want to see what it is for real. And let's receive unity from its source. Because unity, as we'll see, is a gift. And I pray that as we walk out of this room today, we will have a renewed commitment to maintain the unity that we have. Okay, does that sound good? You just say, yeah, it sounds great. Humor me. Psalm 133. Let's read it together. Verse 1. Behold, how good and really how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The grass withers. And the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord abides forever. And all God's people said, Amen, Amen. There are certain things in this life that are good. Oh yes, they are. But man, are they not very pleasant. Right? Like the dentist. Right? Everybody knows that you have to go to the dentist. It is a good Thing and I just want to apologize for any dentists up in here. Okay, it's just it is what it is. Okay, it is what it is. All right, so it's good to go to the dentist. Not always pleasing and pleasant to go to the dentist, but we all recognize that if we stop going to the dentist, we're gonna have some problems with our beavers, with our teeth. Right? We're gonna have problems. Right? So we go to the dentist. It's good, but it's not so pleasant. There are other things that are 
pleasant, but not so good. Jeremy made reference to one a couple weeks ago in his sermon. McDonald's french fries. They are pleasant. Somebody say amen to that. McDonald's french fries are pleasant. But then like six seconds after you're done with those, you know that this is not good, right? This is pleasing, but it is not good. I should not be doing this. How about the hours of time wasted in a Netflix binge? Man, that was awesome. But I feel a little dumber, right? Like, that was not good for me. I'm, I'm dumb now. I need to read a book because I've lost IQ level big time. It was pleasant, but it is not good, right? Or vacations that you can't afford, leaving you in quite amount of consumer debt, right? We can do this. We got the money. Yay! Then you drive home and you're like, why, Lord, did I do this? You're getting the point. And see, today we see that both of these things come together, right? That the psalmist is telling us that there's something that is good. It has uh, uh, qualities that are positive. It's inherently, essentially good. And at the very same time, it is pleasing. It's enjoyable. And he says this, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. That when brothers come together, brothers and sisters, when they come together in unity, when many are made one together, that this is a good thing. And at the very same time, that is very refreshing. It is very pleasant to all those who are witnessing and experiencing it. Brothers and sisters really gets down to God's covenant family. Right? This is the people of Israel. This psalm is in the midst of the songs of ascent, where the people, wherever they lived throughout the region of, 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 of Israel, would journey up to Jerusalem for these three main feasts, and they would come together, coming from different uh, uh, villages, coming from different places, probably economically, socially, uh, and they would come together for worship in one time, in one place. David, or whoever the author of the Psalms is, is looking at this experience, seeing brothers and sisters and families come together for worship, and he's saying, wow. That's really the tone of this first verse. Wow. How good. And not just and pleasant, but how pleasant. There's a, there's a tone of joy and satisfaction and delight. There's a tone of hope. Man, look at this. How good this is. How pleasant this is when everybody comes together in God's covenant family. This is an amazing thing. Wow. That's what we see taking place here. He's saying, in essence, that it is good and it is pleasant when those who have been bound together in God's covenant family are living together, worshiping in harmony with one another. That is good and that is pleasant. And then you ask the question, as they might have asked, well, what's so good about it, right? What's so good about brothers and sisters living together in harmony and in unity? And I love what Sinclair Ferguson 
uh, pointed out in his message on, on this very psalm. He, he made a joke that I think is fitting. You know, like if we were going to ask you today, what, what is it that's so good? Explain it a little bit. Give me a little bit of, give me a metaphor. Give me, give me a simile. Give me something to understand what makes this so good. He says, I doubt any of you would say, well, it's like the oil running down on Aaron's beard all the way down, right? They would, you wouldn't say, man, I'll tell you what, what makes it great. It's the, it's the dew from Herman, man. You guys would look at me and say, this guy's out to lunch. You know, what is he talking about? And I thought that was fitting. So we see these two metaphors here that uh, aren't that easy, to be honest, to, to quickly interpret. It's not that easy in our 2017 context to just understand what's going on with the, the anointing oil, the precious oil being poured onto Aaron's beard and this dew of Hermon. What is Hermon? What is going on with that? But here's simply what's going on. If you look at verse 2, it's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. You see, this refers really to the way in which the high priest was anointed in Exodus chapter 30. If you want to dig in and understand a little bit more about this, read Exodus chapter 30. Basically what would happen, this precious oil, this special oil would be poured out onto the high priest right over top and this oil would run over down his sides of his head onto his shoulders, run down all the way almost covering him in a sign of really God's blessing and God's presence. It was, it was a beautiful image, a, a beautiful picture of, of, of God's presence, God's blessing upon the high priest of Israel. And so what he's saying is this, is that when brothers and sisters come together and, and worship as God's family, it's like this powerful experience of God's blessing is occurring, this covering this oil that is poured on, this setting apart, this anointing, really symbolizing the presence of God with His people. And the same thing really for uh, verse 3. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. This large, more higher altitude mountain, which towered over the region. The precipitation, the dew, all that stuff would 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 find itself across the region. You imagine in the, in, the, in, the, in the morning hours of the day, waking up and seeing the dew, all the, the perspiration, uh, all the precipitation, I should say, all over the, the terrain. And so it's, yeah, that was a bad one, sorry. I didn't write that, okay? That's what happens when you deviate from a manuscript. You start saying weird stuff. So this, what did I say? No! precipitation all over covering Zion, making its way all the way to Jerusalem. And again, it was a sign of God's presence, God's provision that really, in many ways, in, in, in months of little or no rain, no, little or no rain would provide uh, the water necessary for fruit bearing. So this was a wonderful picture for the people of Israel. So he's saying to the people of Israel, he's saying to us, see unity, see true unity for what it is. It is a blessing. It is a sign of the very presence of God in the midst of his people as he brings them together. It is good. 
It is pleasant. I'm thoughtful of just some right away examples of where we see this. First of all, right here and right now. That this, as I look out and as you look around, this is wonderful. This is a, this is a good thing. This is a blessing. This is an experience of, of God's presence and blessing where His people in His covenant family come together from various places across this geography, various ethnicities, various economic backgrounds. People come together all because they have been united to God. Right In corporate worship, we put on display a unity, a, a true and abiding unity, a oneness that we share in the body of Christ. That is good. That is pleasant. It is a wonderful experience that in some way, shape, or form, if we're really in tune with what's going on this week, if we really have eyes to see week in and week out, we will look at it and walk out and say each and every week, how good and how pleasant it is. This is good for me and it is bringing me great joy to worship and gather with God's covenant family. I'm thoughtful of a prayer meeting that Doreen and I were participating in at the Acts 29 Pastors and Spouse Retreat. You talk about the coming together of God's people to, to, to share in His presence and to uh, worship Him and seek Him. You're seeing all these uh, pastors from across the globe, uh, from here to, to Japan, to Australia, uh, even New Zealand, you know, India, Europe, South America, Mexico, and us, North Syracuse. Like coming together and seeing in this moment at 6.30 in the morning when everyone's thinking, man, aren't we on vacation? And we're praying and we're seeking the Lord. And to just for a moment open your eyes and look across a filled room and see that kind of thing. The only reaction that you can have in that moment if you know the Lord is to say, wow, how good. How pleasant this is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. This is good. This is pleasing. And maybe even more recent. Is this Wednesday, this past Wednesday, uh, we met with uh, the, I met with the Clay Area Pastors at Beacon Baptist Church right up Route 11. Many of you know we've been meeting regularly to pray, to strategize about how to reach to the northern suburbs of this county. And more and more, the Spirit just continues to unite us and bind us together. We share the same gospel. We stand on the same gospel together. And that unity, that thing that brings us together as we pray and we laugh and we weep together and we think about how we can work together to see every man, woman, and child have repeated opportunities to hear the gospel from, uh, from uh, um, Bridgeport all the way to Beeville. And that's 115,000 people. And you got six of us in a room and our congregations represented. You think, how are we going to do it? Well, together. Together. In our Christian unity, that's how we're going to do it for the years to come. It is a beautiful thing. And to hear one newcomer in the room say, the reason I'm here is because I'm looking for the Big C Church. Some of you are looking for the Big C Church here in the room. 
You're sick and tired of all the silly, unnecessary divisions in the body of Christ. You've seen how discord is disgusting when absolutely unnecessary. Listen, there are times to part ways. There are doctrines that matter. Believe me. We, we, we stand on our doctrinal positions unapologetically. We believe what we believe and we think it matters. But understand this. Unnecessary division based on competition and territorialism, right? And secondary matters is just unnecessary and unhelpful for the kingdom of God in any given place. And it's disgusting, to be honest. Enough of the competition, pastors. Some would say amen to that. And it's about time we start collaborating and standing together as brothers and sisters for the sake of the mission that God's called us to in this geography. And so it's good and it's pleasing to see brothers and sisters come together in Christian unity. It's an awesome thing. And yet, sadly, for many of us, it's hard to see it. It's hard to see it. There are factors that fog our vision of what true community really is. It's good and pleasant. But there are factors that fog our vision. Number one, in culture, we hear its confession, it's all good. We read the bumper stickers, coexist. Right? We live in a pluralistic, relativistic society that really wants unity. They want to come together. And if you go to a Unitarian Universalist church, you'll see right out front a peace pole with every religion and faith belief in the world major one represented on that pole, coming together as one, symbolized in the peace pole. But every time I look at that, I say to myself, okay, on what basis do we have peace with one another? You can't just have peace without a basis for it. Something that makes it happen. Some event, something that we share that brings us together. And human dignity alone cannot bring us together. You just can't. And so it's often difficult for us to see the value of Christian true community because the world is fogging our vision based on its heretical claims. Number two, we are good at finding replacements to true community. Right? We love sharing things with people. Things that we find pleasing. Not necessarily things that we always find good. But maybe in our perception we do see it as good and pleasing. And some of these things are good and they're fun, but replacements to true community become idols. Right? Things like uh, sports bringing us together. Right? Go Steelers. Sports bringing us together. You know, I can overstate those things, right? I, I do it in a silly way, but that's not really who I am, right? That's not my identity. That's not where I find my place in this world. Sorry, Grandpa. It was hard. Right? Sports. What about hobbies that we share, right? We all, man, our kickball team, man, we're real tight knit. It's bringing us together. Anyway, there's a list of things that we can do to replace it traveling, or even just causes, right? There's a cause. Love the response of the world to, to what's taking place in Harvey. And I trust that many of you saw the email this week and you've, you've responded according to the Lord's leading to, to be generous and help other people 
and what they're wrestling with. And Jesus said, please get behind these things. These are good. These are pleasant. But the, we're a cause-addicted society now. right? We're getting behind everything. There's an opportunity to give to a million things all over the place. And just fighting for a cause itself without a, really any foundation or any really long-term vision for what are we really trying to accomplish, those things really are just simply replacements. Or let me say, could be replacements to what true unity really brings. But I think the most uh, poignant reason why it's hard for us to see the value of true unity and what it is, is because of past hurts. Right? I, I'm certain that every one of you here, in some way, shape, or form, have been hurt, have been sinned against in the body of Christ. Right? There are past experiences, interactions, uh, uh, things people have said to you, things people that have uh, things that people have done to you that you'll never forget. It that that just has marked you, has hurt you, has left an imprint on your life. And so it's easy, based on our pain and our experiences, to disengage. It's easy for us to say, "I'm doing fine," and to isolate ourselves really from true unity, from Christian unity. Right? You see this book come out unchristian about ten years ago. It's basically a book listing complaints that the world has about an unloving, disconnected, unsympathetic church, hypocritical church. It's really a collection of stories of people that have been hurt by the church and the experience that they've had. And I think it would be easy for me to stand up here and start ranting and raving in defense. Right? But here's the deal. In some ways, all those experiences really just give us an opportunity to represent the power and truth of the Gospel all the more. And to look at people who have been hurt and stop defending ourselves and just say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We failed you. We have not represented we have not put on display the unity and the, and the brotherhood, the oneness of the body of Christ. We have sinned against you, and we are sorry. And I don't know if that's maybe a struggle in your own heart. I don't know if maybe there's a, a situation or a past thing that has kept you feeling like the risk is too great in seeing Christian community for what it really is, even though our sins can sometimes put a little fog on the glasses. I don't know what it is. Maybe, maybe that's you. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's something somebody has done. Maybe it's something somebody has said. But on behalf of the body of Christ, let me say something. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And I mean that with all sincerity. All sincerity. And I pray that you will be able to see today uh, what Christian community really is. It's good. It's pleasant. It's worth the risk of your engagement and interaction with it. I would go venture to say that it's in the end more risky for you to isolate yourself from community than it is to continue to trust God and pursue the good and pleasant thing that it is. So see Christian unity. See community for what it is. Good and it is pleasant. But maybe there's another reason why. Maybe there's one other reason why that Really, the things that I'm talking about and the emphasis that I'm making today aren't really tracking. 
Maybe you don't know how good and pleasant Christian unity is, is because you have never received it from its source. See, we don't create Christian community. We don't create this good and pleasant thing that the the psalmist talks about. It is a gift from God poured out on His people. There's one other image that you can't miss from verses 2 and 3. It's the idea of something being poured out from above on another. And I thought this, it was, I didn't see this at first, but as I was engaging other uh, preachers and commentators, it was like the thing that kept being repeated throughout all the people writing on it. It's that this image of something being poured out from above on another. Right? The oil being poured out from above on top of Aaron the priest. You get this sense of something coming down from above, covering and oil being received. The same with the metaphor of the dew, right? It's, it's Mount Hermon being so much higher than Zion and the dew of Hermon coming down from above on the city of God. This pouring, running down from the higher to the lower. And the bottom line is this, is that's exactly what happens to us, is that God gives us unity. It is a gift from His hand. It is something that comes from Him and is poured out to us. So it's possible that you have not experienced the outpouring of the unity of God into your life. And today I want to give you that opportunity. Or maybe, at the very least, you have received it, but you've not seen it in these terms. Unity is something to be received from its source, the Lord Himself. You say, well, where do you get that? Well, you got to go back to page one of the Bible. We have a God living in interdependent community. Let us make man in our image. There's plurality. There's three, as we understand the Trinity, there's three saying, let us make man and woman in our image after our likeness. You see, God has always existed throughout all eternity As three in one. He's lived in oneness. In the Godhead. And then you see that he makes men and women. And what does he do to them? He brings them together. And the two become what? One. Right? There's something about the purpose in the story of God. of, Of many becoming one. Three in one, now in marriage, two becoming one. And we understand as the story of the Bible unfolds that, that really the, the church, the relationship of marriage, I'm sorry, men and women are representing the relationship that God has with His people. There's this greater, more eternal union that it is representing. And that relationship is Jesus and the church. The church is this group of individuals that God binds together and the image the Bible gives it is one body. Many members, many parts, one body. And how are they brought together? And to whom are they united to? Jesus Christ. 
You see, our experience of unity is derivative. It's something we receive from above. It's something poured out to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that powerfully. I believe as we read as we opened the, opened the uh, service today. He Himself is our peace. You see, the peace poll doesn't show you that. Pluralism doesn't recognize that. That the only foundation for peace must come from the only source of peace. God Himself. And He's done so in Jesus Christ. That's my hope-filled word for you today. So if you're feeling disconnected, if you're feeling far from God, if you're not feeling and sensing what true unity is, let me give it to you straight today. It comes in and through from, because of, on account of Jesus. His death and His resurrection. As a matter of fact, Romans chapter 6 talks about that this is really the essence of what our salvation is. That we're being united together to Jesus Christ in His death for us and in His resurrection. His death is our death. And His life is our life. All on the basis of our faith and trust and reliance upon Him. So if you have not received Jesus, you have not received true unity. You can't see it for what it is. And I pray that God would open your eyes this morning. And that God would heal your heart. All the pain and disillusionment and, and, and just frustration that you've had as people have sinned against you. Maybe all of your own sins that have alienated you. The pain that you've caused. Please hear the Gospel that Jesus is sufficient to forgive you to cover you, to wash over you from head to toe, from the tops of Hermon to your very heart. God is able to save you and bring you back into relationship and bind you in His covenant family. Because that's been the story of God from the beginning. To make many one. And I pray that He would bring you to Himself and to one another even now. You must receive unity from its source. And this is what makes Christian unity stand out. There's no other community group. There's no Facebook group. There's no affinity. There's no activity that's fun. There's no nationalistic pride that can bring us together like the blood of Jesus can bring us together. You know, you look around the room and you say to yourself, what, why are we even here? What is this, right? Like, we would never hang out with each other, would we? Well, of course we would, say. Of course we would, Mike. Right? But there's something that brings... Matt's saying no. There's something that brings us together every Sunday. Every Sunday, there's something that brings us together. Regardless of whether or not we even like each other. Regardless of whether or not we'd invite each other over on a Friday night. None of that even matters. Whether we share the same leisure interest, none of that matters. It is the Savior. It is Jesus. It is the blood. It is the work of Christ that binds us together. And even when we sin against each other, even when we annoy each other, we keep coming back. And I love that about the Gospel. Because there's nothing like it. And you think, well, maybe he's done. He doesn't have anything more to say. But here's what it says. For there... Christ's body, Christ's church in Zion. That's where the Lord has commanded the blessing. 
life forevermore. There. God's people in God's city. Under God's rule. Experiencing God's presence. That's where the Lord has commanded the blessing. You're looking for the blessing of God. Look around. Because this is a foretaste of eternal life. This is a foretaste of eternal life. There's nothing like that. There's nothing else in the world that gives you an appetizer. Bacon wrapped scallops. Gives you an appetizer of what eternal life will be like. Than what takes place here. How good. How pleasant. When brothers come together in unity. There's nothing like that. There's nothing else you foresee and get excited about in the world. I'm not being proud. I'm just preaching truth. There's nothing like this. Even if you don't see it, it's objectively revealed to us. This is what it is. There's nothing else that gives you a foretaste of forever. Like God's people living in this time under His rule as His Spirit indwelt people. See it for what it is. And receive it today from its source, the Lord Himself. You say, well, what do we do with it? I see it. And I have it. Amen. But what do I do with it? And I think the application really comes in Ephesians chapter 4. You want to turn there? Fine, I'm going to close with this. Ephesians chapter 4. What do we do with it if we have it? I think that's an important question. The good news is the Bible answers it. Paul, you know the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters are basically Paul going off on the good news of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me worship Him for all that He's done. Let me explain the, the, the nature of God bringing Jew and Gentile together. Let me just uh, just go off on this glorious mystery in Jesus Christ. He's someone who's done immeasurably more than you can ever think or imagine. Just this three chapter just going off on the good news of what Christ is and what He's done. And then in chapter 4, He transitions, right? He, he starts telling them what they should do about that. And so in some ways, we see the good and pleasant nature of unity. But what do we do with it once we have it? This is what he says. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So what do we do with unity once we have it? We maintain it. That's what we do it. That's what our lives are about. If, if our identities have been tethered, have been, have been united to Jesus and His people, right? we can't create that. We're not unity creators. We're unity maintainers. Right? The, the, our response to that work of Jesus, uniting us to Himself and others, is to just say, listen, I'm going to give my life to maintenance of unity. 
Now, let me just confess something to you. I hate maintaining everything, pretty much. Right? Like, I'm doing it because dutifully, I know it's good, but it's not pleasing. Right? Like, nobody wants to mow the lawn. Nobody wants to do that. Raise your hand if you like mowing the lawn. All right, I'm, I'm less manly than you. Okay? Just, it is what it is. Like, maintaining things, keeping them, watching over them, caring for them. Right? That's what we're to do with this unity. See it for what it is. Receive it from its source. And then what are we to do? Maintain it. Keep it. Protect it. Guard it. Feed it. Nurture it. Structure our whole life to it. So that nothing jeopardizes its joy in our life. And I think that's what we should do. Ligon Duncan says this. He says, God does not tell us to create unity. He tells us to preserve it. He creates the unity. He gives the unity. It's our job not to disrupt the unity, not to break up the unity, not to take for granted the unity. Man, I'm guilty of that. I've been in the church for 30 years, and, and, and I can miss the good and pleasant nature of what happens. And I wonder if you can too. I can take it for granted. Oh, it'll be there tomorrow. It'll be there next week. We are not to take for granted the unity, but maintain the unity. And here David is emphasizing that it is the Lord who has commanded this blessing life forevermore. We're called to maintain it. And I'm going to just end with this question, how? There are a million answers to that. I'm going to give you one in two parts. Maybe three or four. One in two parts. Okay? We maintain unity when we're radically committed to living in response to the gospel and our mutual growth in it. We're heading into the fall season, and I've been radically committed to organizing my calendar, my closets. Like, I'm just like, okay, we're doing this, baby. We are not gonna, the wheels will not fall off this month. We're setting routines. We're reminding people that this is basically military academy when you live in this home, right? We're setting things in order. We are passionate about maintaining order in the Maisie house this fall. And we can easy for, easily forget what our primary concern must be as followers of Jesus 24-7, 365 throughout all eternity. What is the Gospel? How do I respond to it? And how do I represent it in this world? Is that a primary concern of yours? Are you radically committed to the gospel and responding to it? I think that's what we do to maintain unity. We become unshakable, immovable, undistractable in our commitment to the gospel, responding to it, and representing it in the world. That's your number one calling as a follower of Jesus. What you are passionate about now and when you walk out these doors is not lunch. But a radical commitment to the Gospel and responding to it faithfully. The Gospel says who you are. You're a, you're a member in Christ's church. You're a member of the body. You're valuable and indispensable. We can't do it without you. That's, that the spiritual life is not you and Jesus in the woods with your Bible and a journal and a pen. Those things are good. But when you have a you and Jesus mentality, it's poisonous to maintaining unity. It's disruptive 
to your joy in God, and it is detrimental to the mission that we've been called to. Radical commitment to the gospel. What that means is this, that every day, every moment, no matter what it takes, you stay anchored in it. You're in the Scriptures. You're pursuing God. You're letting God orient you in your identity. Shape your perspective on life and struggles and sin. The gospel is your glasses that you wear, that you see all of life through. Your whole world, your whole perspective, your whole identity, all your behaviors. How is this in response to the gospel? Otherwise, we're just playing games and being religious, which is a royal waste of time. We're in the Word, filled with the Spirit. Orienting our lives to the local church. I think we maintain unity when we're, when our lives are structured to do so. Is your life structured to the gospel community? The church. Now I'm not saying do you go to church every day. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying when you look at your calendar, that's right. You, your calendar and your bank statement, they are your value statements. This is what matters to me. This is my identity lived out on paper. This is where my money goes. This is where my time goes. There's nothing more valuable than time and money. So what I'm trying to get at is this, is that we can't maintain unity that we've received if we are not radically committed to nurturing it, to caring for it, to giving ourselves to it, to orienting our lives around the people that we share it with. So I think that's really what the call of this passage is today. That's why we're asking you to go to missional communities. We're driving you crazy with missional communities. It's on your seat. It's on the website. We're never going to stop talking about missional communities. Like, oh my gosh. Okay, okay, I'll go. That's not really what we're looking for. Believe me. We're not just trying to fill seats. We're not just trying to expand our ministry. That's not our heart. This is about being radically committed to the gospel and maintaining the unity that we have received from God. That's what this is. So we're telling you to get involved in missional communities, to be radically committed to the gospel and your response in it, to be consumed with discipleship, your relationship with God. When we call you to that and then say, here's a context in where those things can happen. That's what it's all about. If we have 10 missional communities with 30 and 30 people in each, and if we're not radically committed to the gospel and maintaining unity, it's a royal waste of time. Am I right? This fall we have two. This is four. We have two missional communities. And I'm praying that we will get fully engaged in these things. Not to fill seats, not to fill the couch, but because we are radically committed to Christian unity. Radically committed to the Gospel. Radically committed to our personal discipleship. And we understand this, that even though it's not our favorite thing to do on a Thursday night, you could actually be a blessing in somebody else's life. Is that a radical thought? Then maybe you've learned it all in Romans. Oh, I've already studied Romans. 
I've already walked down that road. But maybe you can be instrumental in helping somebody else grasp the gospel this fall. Maybe that's a radical thought. Maintain the unity. Don't let go. Don't replace it with the things of this world. Don't get caught up in the silliness of relativism and pluralism. See Christian unity for what it is. It is good and it is pleasant. Receive unity from its only source and maintain it. With every ounce of energy, with every dollar, with every time unit that you have, give yourselves to it. Because remember, there is nothing like it. It's worth the investment. It's a foretaste of eternity. According to Revelation chapter 19 and 20. I pray that you can see it for what it is today. And I pray that God heals your heart. Because I know it hurts and it's hard. And You know, I think, why do people get so hurt in the church? People are mean all the time in multiple contexts all day long. They're just mean to each other. I heard we were traveling and all of a sudden we were, just, we were going 10 over the speed limit and someone gave us the finger. I was like, well, because people are mean. That's what they are. They're mean. People are mean. All the time. But somehow, when somebody's mean to somebody in the church, it's like their whole life falls apart. Am I overstating it? Sin is rampant everywhere. But if sin happens in the church, you see, the understanding is this, that when the expectation of joy is high, and when it's not received, the hurt, or, the hurt goes deeper. Right? It's a shock. It's an awe. It runs deep. You open your heart wide to people, and they, they hammer you. But I pray today that the Lord would heal your heart through the blood of Jesus. And I pray today that the Lord would call us all to a radical commitment to maintaining and caring for and nurturing a gift from God, each other, in Christ's family. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, your word says that it is good and it is pleasing when brothers and sisters come together in unity. Today we praise you for what you have done in Jesus Christ, bringing every man, woman, and child that trusts in you from every economic uh, status, from every social economic or social background, every ethnicity, from every nation, uh, from every city, every suburb across this country. You brought them all together because of Jesus Christ, his work, his death, his resurrection. Pray today that our faith and hope would be in it and it alone. If there's anybody here today that doesn't know you, I pray that you would pour out your spirit into their heart and draw them to repentance and faith in Jesus. And we pray and we offer ourselves arms wide open to include and, and, and to love and to spread uh, just true Christian unity. Uh, this is, a, this is a, a family, but it is always open to grow. Uh, family can sometimes be a, a negative term when it comes to church because you get that family-style church going on. This is a family-style church, but it is a family because of what you've done that has arms wide open to include more, to love more, to embrace more. And I pray that we would do that. That we would maintain the unity that we have and that unity would lead to more people. As Jesus prayed, may they, may they all be one as we are one so that the world may know that you have sent me. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.